Hey everyone, I'm Jacob Cohen Donnelly and this is a Media Operator. This show is a discussion about building media companies for current and prospective media operators. We discuss business models, products, audience development, subscriptions, advertising, commerce, everything to help you with your media business. To learn more and to become a premium member of the newsletter, visit amediaoperator.com slash amopodcast to receive 10% off a yearly subscription. My guest this week is Julia Beiser, Chief Product Officer and Global Head of Digital at Bloomberg News. During our 40-minute discussion, we talked about how product management is different in a media company than a big tech company, how they are tackling subscriptions and advertising at Bloomberg, the advice Jeff Bezos gave to the product team at the Washington Post, and what media companies should look for when making their first product hire. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Let's start off right from the beginning with two core questions. How did you find your way to working in product? Because your early roles at the Washington Post were on the edit side. And then what exactly does the chief product officer and global head of digital at Bloomberg News actually do? Great questions, both. Uh, I will start with the first one because it's chronological order. Um, I um, found my way into journalism somewhat haphazardly. I was a lifestyle journalist at the Washington Post. I wrote about fun events and things to do in Washington, D.C. But I worked in the Washington Post's digital newsroom um, that was housed over in Arlington, Virginia at the time. And I, I would say that that experience really lit me up to the power of journalism. You know, I could hear my colleagues on the phone with Congress people, and I just thought, man, this is such an important field, and I, it, it felt great to be a part of it. I joined the Washington Post on the day Katrina hit landfall, and um, if you're in the middle of a, a news story like that, you, you you know you sort of can't help but fall in love with journalism, um, watching the way journalists cover big events like that, um, and so I you know, was doing my lifestyle reporting and being a part of this bigger um, news gathering enterprise. And as I, you know, continued on in my career, two things happened. Um, Number one, I found my way to work on a number of tech products. Um, The lifestyle section of the website was very well, well monetized, had a lot of advertiser dollars flowing in. So we had access to developers and I worked really closely with a lot of developers on, on some big projects that were really fun. Um, things like, you know, interactive maps where all the bars with patios are and things like that. Um, and so I got kind of my, my feet wet on uh, how to do tech projects. And then the second thing that happened was I started to realize that while I loved being a part of content creation and I loved reporting, especially and talking to people, um, I had become even more in love with the idea of journalism being a sustainable business. And if you believe that's true, the problem to solve isn't that the world needs another food blogger, though I was happy to do that work in my 20s. Um, The problem to solve is user experience. It is monetization. It's subscription. It's growing engagement. Um, And it was through that kind of realization and this kind of increasing work I had been doing with the tech side that I found my way into a job I had never heard of called product management. Um, so I've been doing that ever since at a variety of different news organizations um, and, and brought that to my current role at Bloomberg. So um, to your second question, what does the product, uh, chief product officer and head of digital do? 
Um, I find myself in the middle of our two major revenue streams. That is subscription and advertising, trying to make sure we're maximizing our digital platform to number one, first and foremost, serve our customers. Um, And then number two, make sure that serving of a customer translates into a sustainable business. Um, And I have a really, really great team of people I work with to do that every day. And it's a a trip. So before we get into talking about Bloomberg's products and things like that, I want to start with some basics. So in most tech organizations, product is likely the bread and butter of the business. However, in media, content is actually the product, which would mean that editorial is the bread and butter. How does product in the traditional sense work in a media company? And then how do you work with your stakeholders, which are by and large likely not very traditionally product focused? Sure. And I I say this to um, my staff a lot. Um, Being product in a media organization um, is not for the faint of heart. Um, You know, uh, oftentimes you go into a room and you uh, not everyone there understands what you're bringing to the table, whether you're representing tech, design, editorial um, or commercial interests. Um, someone in that room is thinking, why is this person here again? Um, so, uh, so it's a challenge in the way it is in a, at, a, at a big tech company. Uh, but that's exactly why you should do product at a media company. We are in the midst of this massive digital transformation. Um, and I think outside of big tech companies, if you um, were to look around and say, um, what is what is the future for each individual business going to be like? Digital is going to be a huge part of that. They are going to be led, these companies are going to be led over that bridge through a period of disruption and innovation and product has a big role to play in that. So it's lonely being in traditional industries as a product manager, but you have the opportunity to have a front row seat in the middle of disruption and help these industries find their way to a new digital future. And if that's not motivating and exciting for you, you're in the wrong business. Um, And so I think that's the spirit with which you can bring a product mindset to a media company. Um, That said, I think there's been a ton of work. You know, when I started doing product in a media company, that was probably 2010 at the time, couldn't explain the job to my mom, still can't, by the way, couldn't explain the job to my mom, certainly couldn't explain it to my bosses um, and or various stakeholders I've had over the last 10 years. That's changed dramatically. Um, You see a lot of people um, in journalism school embracing product thinking. Uh, You see a lot of newsrooms embracing product thinking. So um, I think there's a lot product can offer in that product is essentially a mediating force between commercial, technical, um, and um, user-focused interests and trying to kind of figure out what the goal of the organization can be and chart a course on the way there. And that's a really exciting opportunity. So when we last spoke, You spent some time talking about the two major roles in a product department, and I might be simplifying this, but product managers and program managers. Can you explain what these two roles are and how organizations should be thinking about activating both functions? Sure. Um, I think, you know, I think a mistake that media companies specifically make when they think about product managers is they think, oh man, you know, I need to hire a product manager. What are you looking for? I need someone who can, you know, get stuff done. Well, anyone can get stuff done. Um, And there are really great functions that are really more like either project management or program management that's really focused on the delivery of certain features 
um, or, um, or new sections or commercial initiatives, just making sure those things get out the door. Um, that's a really important job and really shouldn't be undercounted, you know, um, especially in this, in this moment for our industry, where really, you know, kind of every decision you make matters, making sure you follow, follow through and execute is key. Um, but product management, I think is a slightly different problem and, um, perhaps more expansive and not all media companies have the stomach for it. And so product managers, as I see them, kind of sit at the intersection of all of these different competing, sometimes competing business interests. What's the best for the user? What's the best for the story of our journalism? What is the best for our commercial interests? How can we best present it? And the ever-present issue we all face with not enough resources, not enough time. Um, Product managers creatively synthesize all those ideas, Right, put the user at the center and figure out the best thing to do to deliver on the goals of the business while um, uh, while meeting the user needs. I often say that product managers are sort of the bridge between the technology you build and the business you want to be in. Um, and I think media companies um, often just aren't getting the most value out of their product managers if they're not thinking about product managers playing this kind of larger strategic role in helping you really understand your customers and figure out the best way to grow your engagement and grow your revenue from there. And I had in my notes uh, this concept that one group of people look at things through a microscope while the other group of people look at things through a telescope. Can you elaborate on that point? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we were talking about that. That was that was a quote I had just read and was particularly enamored with of um, from Paris Hilton, I believe, talking about her <laughs> business endeavors um, and this, um, her boyfriend who was working on these business endeavors. And she said that he talks about looking, needing to look at your business through a microscope and also look at your business through a telescope. Um, I think product managers can play both roles. Media companies shortchange themselves when they only ask product managers to focus on micro problems, and those are the problems of delivery, as opposed to taking that telescope look and say, hey, look, what are we going to do in the next quarter, half, year, that'll drive our business forward in a major macro way? You know, I think in media specifically, we have a lot of ways we've innovated over the last couple of years. People have done affiliate marketing um, businesses, people have branched out into events, you know, we're, we're really at a point where, you know, people have gone hard at subscriptions. I think we're really at a point where we need to come up with, like, what's the next big innovation in the business? And I think product can help point away there because when done right, product managers are, are really, really close to who your customers are. So let's pivot now and, and spend some time talking about Bloomberg because that is, you know, where you are today. A big part of your focus at Bloomberg has been on building out the subscription product. Uh, and we saw news the other day that this is growing wonderfully to hundreds uh, hundreds of thousands of subscribers. What went into launching the subscription product at Bloomberg? Because it's not really just flipping a switch, as those outside of product like to say. What went into launching that from talking to your customers to working internally with stakeholders and then ultimately getting it built? Sure, sure. Great question. Working on the subscription business has been one of um, the joys of my time here. I started about four months before we launched that business. So the decision had been made to do it. We were at work on some some tech work to do it. Um, But I would say we were in very early stages for how we were going to stand up that business. Um, Yes, it started a lot with talking with our customers. How could we 
enhance our product so that people would think, hey, that's worth paying for. How much were they willing to pay? What were they looking for from a, from a coverage perspective? So I would say we took a really like 360 degree view of what, um, what kind of product we needed to have that would be worthy of subscription dollars. Um, furthermore, I think what got really interesting, the part that, that I'm most proud of, um, after we kind of made sure we were clear on the product, we started thinking more holistically about what it means to launch a paywall. As I said when I got there, we're not launching a paywall. We're launching a subscription business. A paywall is a toll booth. Please pay us some money. Great. Can you transact? Amazing. Transaction done. A subscription business means can you actively continue to you know, recruit and attract new members every month? Acquire them. Can you retain the ones you have? Do you have the right email programs set up and push notification programs set up to make sure subscribers are getting value out of their subscription? Um, we have spent a lot of time and effort in building out what I would call kind of a 360 degree marketing apparatus in support of these efforts. How can we use data and propensity modeling and other kind of um, uh, machine learning tools to help us find on, you know, the 50 million people on our site every month, find likely subscribers and make sure we market to them with the right offer, with the right language, with the right price. Um, so we've done a ton of testing in that space. And I think that's where we've seen the biggest rewards. As we go into next year, I think we're really focused on mid-funnel. Um, how we get those lightly engaged users, how do we get them kind of off the sidelines and into our subscription product. So I think the, the most fun thing about that product is really not only talking to our customers and understanding how to make a great product, but also doing the work across marketing, across product, across editorial to say, okay, great. Our goal is revenue. <laughs> the way we will measure whether we're, doing, whether we're on track to hit our revenue number is by measuring active subscribers. And then for active subscribers, that means we have to acquire a bunch of subscribers and we got to retain a bunch of subscribers. So what initiatives are we going to do to get there? And I think out of that, we've come up with some really innovative and, and frankly, just really fun and collaborative ways to figure out how across marketing product and editorial, we can attract and, and retain um, new subscribers. And can you dig in a little bit more on that metric, active subscribers? Because you know when you and I were talking what we, I think what we both agreed on is that too many media companies spend too much time thinking about just net new subscribers. But you take the different approach where you're thinking about this concept of the active subscriber. Can you dig into that? Yes, you bet. Um, and this is all credit due to my partner in crime on this business, uh, a woman named Lindsay Murphy Horrigan, who um, is the GM of our subscription business and runs um, consumer marketing for us. The idea of active subscribers, what I love about active subscribers is that says people on any given day who are subscribed to your publication. So that's new users you acquire day one um, and users who have not yet churned, um, any user who has not yet churned. Why do I love that metric? Because it's inclusive of both acquisition and retention. You can add a bunch of users, but if they all churn out after a one month free trial or, or low paying trial, you are not actually growing your long term revenue right? You are not actually building a sustainable business. And so what active subscribers allows us to do is to look at those two metrics, those two levers we can pull in terms of acquisition and retention and try to figure out where we should on a month to month or quarter to quarter basis, where we should put the most of our efforts to make sure um, we're driving the most sustainable business. 
Um, and I think, you know, oftentimes you, you'll read in the trades, you know, big acquisition numbers, and that's great. Um, and, and certainly a good indicator that you have a strong product that people want to pay for. Um, but the thing about what makes subs businesses so great and such a trip to work on is, you know, it's about human beings every day deciding they want to stay subscribed to your publication. You've got to earn it every day. You've got to leave it, leave it on the field. Um, and that active subscriber metric, I think, really helps focus us and our teams on making sure um, we're really building relationships with subscribers that are going to stay for the long haul. And then to expand on this, as the product team, how do you look at managing day-to-day the actual subscription business? What sort of optimizations and tests do you run? And how much time goes into supporting the marketing team who is focused probably much more on the granular growth of the overall subscription business? Great question. Um, we have... Um, I'm going to get real nerdy for you on a second. Is that okay with you? Are you, go, you down to go down this nerdy path with me? That's why we have this show. All right. Amazing. Okay. So we have two product teams that work on the subscription business today. Um, one is a pod all around acquisition. The other is a pod all around retention. Um, I would say that those teams, and so that's a product manager and a couple of engineers, though each, those teams are focused on two things. Number one, a program management level right? A set of A-B tests that they come up with together with their counterparts in marketing to see if they can do anything to beat our existing controls. So for example, changing the copy on, um, you know, a marketing tout to get a a user on site to subscribe. Um, Can we run an A-B test or multivariate test trying to find the right optimization of that language to to drive more people to subscribe? Um, We run anywhere from 10 to 20 tests every month on those kind of granular details. And I would say that's about a quarter of each of those teams time is spent on running and operating and managing the results of these kind of quick turn um, optimizing tests. And those are done in conjunction with marketing. The other three quarters of their time, they spend focus on those longer term investments, you know, those things we have to do for the long haul to make sure that we're building a sustainable business. So, for example, building out um, a more robust onboarding program has been one of the priorities of of the um, retention team um, and making sure subscribers as they as they subscribe, get more familiar with what the product is and all the benefits and that we roll that out in a smart way. Um, so I would say it's about one quarter, three quarters, and obviously it's very rough between the kind of quick turn experiments and the kind of longer term investments that will set us up for a better business going forward. I want to move now and talk about the advertising business because from a product perspective, you've also been put in charge of, of this reimagined ad business as I saw one source refer to it as. Can you talk about how you're looking to tackle the advertising business at Bloomberg and how it's going to change over the coming months and years? Sure. Yeah. Um, advertising has been a real, real treat for me. About a year ago, um, the ad ops and ad product and uh, programmatic platform team uh, moved over into my group. Um, and I have, as a, in my capacity of product, I've always worked closely with people in ad ops. I've always worked closely with people on the advertising side, um, but never with this degree of detail and depth. Um, and, uh, and so I've, I've really enjoyed the chance to go deep there. Um, I would say, you know, we have a couple of different ways we're looking at it. Number one, first and foremost, you know, 
Bloomberg is a client-led advertising business. Um, we want to be easy to do business with. We want to provide really, really great you know, client service um, and make sure we're meeting the needs of our clients across all of our campaigns. That will continue. Um, one of the, the big things I want to in my role working with these you know, ad operations and other groups is make sure, hey, look, do we have the right dashboards for insights uh, that can provide us better material for pre- and post-sale um, you know, insights for our clients? Um, do we have the right um, information to arm our sales teams with so that they can provide like really cool and insightful stories for our clients as we're trying to, to build and grow our business? So number one, you know, back to basics, we have a strong direct sales organization. I want to make sure that we are using the gifts of technology um, to share some of those insights with our clients. So that's first and foremost. You know, secondly, I think the growth of the subscriptions business now that it, in, at Bloomberg, we're about two and a half years in, has provided this wealth of examples of times where we have used A-B testing to drive to greater results. And I think that there's a huge opportunity for us to do that, not just for the advertising business, but more um, significantly for both businesses, right? You imagine that, especially as most media companies or many media companies are doing these dual revenue streams, can we figure out a better way to monitor those two revenue streams in real time? Can we look at our website like a, a revenue optimization engine and start to figure out how we tune the dials to, hey, likely subscribers, they get one kind of experience. Um, never subscribers, they get another type of experience. Um, and, you know, I believe there's a lot there that, you know, for reasons you and I discussed, don't usually come to light because these organizations are relatively siloed. Um, we have the opportunity in my group to share some tools, to share some knowledge, to get our databases together so that we can um, use everything we're learning on the subs business, not just about our customers from a first party data standpoint, but also from their behavior on site to drive the advertising business as well. Um, I'm very optimistic about the prospects there and some of the early tests we've done have shown like we got a lot of opportunity to just be smarter. You know, I used to have a friend who said media companies really need to keep their hand on the rudder. And I think that's apt for many years at media businesses. We, we didn't, right. I'm thinking about 2015 when many of us like jumped over to social media and distributed platforms, you know, we didn't have a real sense of how we were uh, making money on all these platforms. I think we're all smarter now. Um, and I think there's a lot of work to do. Being put in charge of the advertising business, and I agree with you that media companies have sort of given up control of their advertising businesses, uh, or at least that's, in my opinion, what has gone on. What are you thinking about the coming death or deprioritization of a third-party cookie? And where are you investing to maximize your first-party data acquisition, which I imagine is going to become increasingly important for your advertising business? I think... Uh, first question first. I think it is. Um, I think the death of the first, the, the third party cookie. You know, uh, if you just take a macro view, this is obviously the right decision, right? <laughs> Consumers are increasingly wary of being tracked in this way. You know, there's all these reports that um, you know, fifty one percent of publisher revenue disappears somewhere in ad tech. Like we are at a point where we sort of you know lost control of the car here. And I think that um, the death of the, the third-party cookie is a good way for us to kind of just reset and say, well, what are we trying to do here? What's the best, you know, transparent and user-friendly way 
um, we can try to monetize our websites. Um, so I think it's a good reset moment. Uh, I am spending a lot of time reading up about all the options and other solutions out there. I think, you know, Bloomberg's going to take a client led approach here. What do our clients want? What do our clients need? And what do we think is the best way to, um, uh, to serve their needs by also being very, very cognizant of what customers are, uh, what our, um, you know, our readers, um, are, are comfortable with. So I think it's a good reset moment for the industry. It's kind of overdue, and um, we have an opportunity to uh, to reset here. Um, so that I'm optimistic about that. You know, the first party data moment is really great for us. Uh, Bloomberg, aside from being a media company, we are um, a uh, we are housed within a larger financial data company. <laughs> so we're a data company. Uh, we have the right DNA for this. We have the right infrastructure for this. Um, and we've been very, very encouraged with, um, first of all, our customers' kind of willingness to share information about themselves when we provide the right value exchange, when we give them a reason um, to do so, um, and our ability to really draw some real insights out of that that can help drive business for our clients. Um, we have a really unique audience here at Bloomberg, uh, an elite audience. Um, one that our clients really want to speak to um, and our efforts in first party data, just collecting more and more both demographic data about our users, but also survey data to try to figure out that um, psychographic, as they call it, kind of profile of what our users care about. I think that's provided us with a couple of key benefits. Number one, what do these users care about and how can we create better editorial and better products and services for them? Number two, for our advertisers who are looking to reach this audience, we have insight about what makes them tick. We know what platforms to reach them on. Um, we know the best kind of creative to reach those audiences. So I think, you know, when we think about first party data, we see it as this whole ecosystem between, you know, behavioral and contextual data on the site matched with self-reported data from our, from our users, either in the form of surveys or demo um, connected with platform level insights. Um, and the combination of those three, the insights we're able to draw out of those, I think is really beneficial to, to our advertising clients, which is the ultimate goal. So we've talked about the subscription business and we've talked about advertising, uh, at media companies, there's often some pull between the two departments, uh, between do we gate more content to get more subscribers or do we open up more content so we can get more advertising dollars? Both of these departments report into you, which I have a thesis around why that's the right approach. But I'm curious, can you lean into this concept of the revenue optimization system and how you tackle and prioritize the two revenue streams? Well, I'll tell you, um, Jacob, you're going really deep into what my Q4 has been like. So thanks for that. Um, it's worth noting all of the advertising side doesn't report to me. So sales reports into um into someone else. So I have sort of the advertising operations side. Um, so that tension still exists. Um, that said, I am showing up as Pollyanna here in a very, very successful Q4 for us saying, we don't have to choose. We don't have to choose if we're smart. Um, and so right now, I would say we're at a very early stages of our kind of revenue optimization um, engine uh, that is my my end goal and dream here right now it's pretty manual and so some people on my team got together with some people on the 
who were close to the sub side, plus some people who were very close to the ad selling side. And um, we're going through these numbers weekly to make sure we're delivering on all of the impressions we've sold while also simultaneously maximizing value for the subs business. This is a meeting we call Project Needle. We're trying to thread the needle. I don't believe we should have to open the wall, you know, fully to try to deliver on our advertising commitments. I think we can maximize the value of Q4 while also being really smart um, about how we manage the wall. So I don't think these things have to be in conflict if you're looking at the right data and if you're looking at the right numbers. Um, and as you know, you know, there is when you're dealing with um you know, ad campaigns that have audience targeting filters on top of them, you know, the numbers get tricky to read, but it doesn't mean it's impossible to read. Um, so right now I'd say we're doing kind of the, the, the precursors to my revenue optimization engine um, uh, manually. But I think as we go into 2021, where I want to go is that we have um, data and other systems maximizing this um, in real time. And that, to me, is really innovative and, and, um, and interesting, right? How can we, instead of publisher yield management has traditionally hinged on this question of how can we maximize the RPM of each page? And that's valuable. That has valuable. We should all look at the RPM of our page, uh, our pages. But it doesn't look at the lifetime value of a user. And as we move in a direction of subscription business and the increasing importance of audience targeting, I actually think that's a more valuable metric to look at. Um, and so we're trying to figure out how do we get a shared understanding, a shared, a common language of what metrics matter. And then you can optimize the two businesses pretty easily. So let's step away from revenue for a second. Um, how does the product team support the newsroom at Bloomberg? in their day-to-day -day operations, as well as launching new and innovative products, such as the just launched new streaming product that unfortunately I'm blanking on the name of. How does the product team work with them? Sure. Um, well, we have a great, um, a great relationship with our um, colleagues in the, in the digital newsroom. Um, I've really enjoyed working with these guys. And I would say that um, we have done a couple of pretty interesting projects together. So I'll share a couple examples. Um, one, um, we were looking at some of our traffic data um, early this year, and we were saying, you know what we really want to do is we want to try to build a product or a better solution from search for us. We want to drive our search traffic, and is there a way we can, through the combination of product and editorial, build a really, really kick-ass search product? And what we did was come up with um, a product we call Story Threads, which launched earlier this year. And what Story Threads does is it answers questions. You've all been in the position where we've been like, fracking, what is the latest on fracking? Like, I, I keep seeing in the headlines, I don't really know what the story is. And then you Google that question, right? Well, we'd like you to land on Bloomberg. <laughs> and so we've developed essentially... Um, uh, tour guides, right? There's something, they're essentially a combination across between a Wikipedia story and an article. How can we provide you the latest on this particular news story, but also give you that deep sense of context of how we got here, which is something I think news companies do so well. Um, so this was a true collaboration between product and editorial, really diving in on what is a search user looking for and need. Um, there's a woman who runs research for me who's phenomenal. She gave us a lot of great insights about what those search users want and then designing an entire product and the editorial to go along with it um, to help us serve that need. 
Um, and what we found has actually been cool and quite surprising has helped drive the growth of the product is um, it has been wildly successful, not just on search, but on social too. Um, and so we found that these products that were really meant to like answer quick turn search questions have been something people wanted to share in moments of trying to get grounding on an issue. Um, and so we've adapted the product since to try to make sure it sort of solves the, uh, the social use case as well. Um, so that's one example. In years past, we've worked on um, a product I still adore to this day called WorkWise that, that users could give us, you know, their salary, their job title, their desired job title, where they currently live and where they want to live. And we would crunch a bunch of numbers um, from the government to actually give them insights about where to move if they wanted to maximize, you know, um, their income. Uh, if they should get a different degree and stuff like that. And so that's an interesting product to me because that is, number one, it's a fun editorial data journalism project. Number two, provides real value for users. Number three, it's an exchange of first-party data that users were, were willing to give us because they saw value in um, the result. Stepping away from Bloomberg and thinking about product from a media perspective, you know, at Bloomberg, you've got 100 people, I believe, that, that are on your team. However, I work at a company that has 60 people total. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, that's Morning Brew. So if you were working at a smaller sub-100 person media company, how would you think about product in a different way than how you think about it at Bloomberg? I, I don't know that I would think about it differently, though. Take that with a grain of salt. I've always worked for big companies. Uh, but I would, but everything I think about product, I would, I would have to be even more ruthless. So um, prioritization is the, is the biggest, um, the biggest enemy of product out there. Um, you know, can you be very laser focused on what your company can and should be excellent at? Um, and I think in media companies, we want to do everything. Um, and we think we need special super tools for our specific use cases. Um, at a smaller company, I would focus on the question of build versus buy and be very, very um, uh, persnickety about what I chose to build. It would have to be something that would provide differentiated and, and very important value to the company or else it's something I should try to outsource from the outside. Um, so I think that's, that's true. You know, I think that one of the, the, the most important things to do in smaller contexts is continue that vibe of test and learn. And it can be very hard in a smaller context and with fewer resources to embrace a culture of test and learn. Right? You want to be able to just make a decision with your limited resources, execute that decision, and then move on to the next thing on this huge laundry list of priorities you have to tackle. Um, I think committing to evolution and iteration on a product is one of the most important things you can do to incrementally grow it over time. Um, and I believed that in the abstract, but it wasn't until I got to Bloomberg and we really committed to that um, it, with the subscriptions business that now I just preach it from the heavens. I think it's the most important thing you can do in a media company. And then to expand on this, for a company that is looking to make its first product higher, what should they be looking for? <laughs> Great question. Um, first product hire, uh, I always say you are looking for someone with a to-do list mindset. Um, product um, people can often be um, 
these very helpful kind of drum majors for for progress um, at a company. So I think it is important to get get people who are highly motivated by uh, getting things out in the world and getting things shipped. Um, that said, I look for uh, a strong command of data and being able to tell stories out of the data, um, see insights. Uh, I often use the phrase squint your eyes at the data. The data itself can't tell you much. You've got to be able to try to understand the user behavior behind that data. Um, so I look for a strong command of data and what it's trying to say. Um, and uh, a sense of experimentation and creativity around um so you have that insight off the data. What could you do with that insight? Um, and I think, um, uh, you know, user empathy is another thing I look for in product hires. Um, do you have a strong kind of sense for what, um, what your user is saying to you? Um, you know, when I was at the Washington Post um, during kind of the early days of the Jeff, of the Jeff Bezos acquisition, we were building out a product that ultimately was pre-installed on Kindle Fire devices across the country. And as we were trying to figure out, you know, what to do with this product, we mentioned that we were going to bring the product to user testing. And Jeff Bezos said to us, hey, that, that, you know, that's great. And you should obviously get that user feedback. But you also want to think about, do we love it? Do we love this product? And you think about that, man, that kind of goes against everything you hear in product school. You know, you listen to your users above all else. You're not the user, et cetera, et cetera. But I think what, what he was actually saying, and which is the lesson I've taken to heart, is if you deeply, deeply understand your customer and get into the mindset of your customer, <laughs> you're a very, very good barometer of what the right thing to do is for the business. Um, and I think product people, the best product people, can, can really deliver on that user empathy because they have so deeply consumed themselves with what their user cares about. So I want to end the show with the same two questions I ask every person who comes on the podcast. First, looking at your career, what is a mistake that you have made and what did you learn from it that made you better professionally? Well, I have many mistakes, but my favorite mistake was my first product job. Um, I was still an editor in the Washington Post newsroom and I was working on the Post's iPad app. Um, and when we first launched it into the world, the number one comment we got from readers was, why doesn't it have search, like a search function? And the answer of that, of course, is we ran out of time, right? But okay, we were going to build a search function. And I took this feedback to heart and I built the best search function you've ever seen. And I spent so much money to build this search function. And then I delivered it out into the world. And only 200 people a day use that search function. So it was essentially a failure. And what I realized from that is that I actually wasn't hearing the feedback correctly. Users weren't saying, I want search. They were saying, I can't find what I need. And that's a really different problem to solve. And so um, when I say squint your eyes at the data, that's exactly what I mean. <laughs> try to figure out the actual user motivation and the actual kind of business insight that will help you make the best decisions for the business going forward. And then my final question, for individuals that want to get into product management, specifically in media, what is some advice you would give them to both help them get into the front door and succeed once they are there? 
The most important skill a product manager has is that of listening. Listen to your customers, listen to your colleagues, listen to the business goals. Um, and if you do that with your ears open, you will start to figure out the best way to connect that technology or product you want to build um, with the organization. Um, and so I think the most important thing for people who, a lot of people say, I want to get into product management because I hate my CMS and I think it should be better. <laughs> or I want to get into product management because I have this great idea about how article formats should be reimagined. And all that must might be true, but it might not be the right move for the business you're joining or um, for, uh, for the industry at the moment. So I think trying to figure out the most, the way to be successful in product is trying to figure out the key problems of your users and of your organization, and then figure out how you can not only solve those, but solve above and beyond them. That's what success in product looks like to me. If you enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe and give it a five-star rating with your thoughts. If you want even more, Sign up for the newsletter at amediaoperator.com. Each Tuesday, I analyze the latest media news. And on Fridays, I do deep dives into specific strategic and tactical topics about building media businesses. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.